Good morning. Church was pretty young when church leaders began to wed celibacy and spirituality. They kind of fused those things together as long as early as the 300s. Let me tell you a couple quotes. Um, one guy, John Chrysostom, said, Virginity stands as far above marriage as the heavens stand above the earth. Another guy, Jerome. All those who have not remained virgins following the pattern of the pure chastity of angels and that of our Lord Jesus Christ himself are polluted. Augustine uh, called continence a angelic exercise. Part of the problem that occurred early on is that one rule of biblical interpretation was dismissed. That's a really important one. As we're coming to understand, what does this mean? Is This is a rule. It's an important one. The proper understanding of a passage is that which the original readers would have understood. The original readers. So then you got to ask the question, why in the world are they talking about this stuff? Is it, is it a sexual problem or what's the issue? Um, Paul says some things about marriage and celibacy in his letter to the Corinthians. And we're going to read that and understanding not only what he says, but why he says it will help us to understand seeing it through the eyes of the individuals to whom it was written. It's going to help us. To, oh, that's why he's covering that. And I think it'll make some sense. Let's read. Paul writes, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife. And each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourself to prayer, but then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, as a concession, not as command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single, as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. So the married, I give this charge. Not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest, I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever, and she consents to live with him, you should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever, and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife 
is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they're holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Only, let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commands of God. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a bondservant when called? Don't be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freedman of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. We said letters are one side of a two-part conversation, and what we have in the letter is one side. Every once in a while, we get an, un, an opportunity to understand what was happening on the other side of the line, and this is one of them. Um, when Paul writes, now, concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for men not to have sexual relations with a woman, Paul's quoting a line that was written by the Corinthian church. They obviously sent him a letter, and this was the text of their concern. Some had asserted that celibacy was the highest ground and highest good and was something to be practiced and taught, and everybody should, as many as could, should practice. Um, Paul is troubled that by trying to become celibate in the marriage relationship, they are courting moral disaster. And that's what he goes on to talk to them about. Before we look at what he says, let's try to figure out why he says it. Why is he talking about this stuff? And then at the end we'll talk about how does this apply today. Um, the question is, where were the Corinthians getting this idea? I mean, were they just thinking it up, or was there a group around that taught that celibacy was next to godliness? And you know, the fact is, there was. It was a group called the Essenes. Um, the Essenes were a hyper-spiritual branch of the Pharisees. Um, in the centuries before Jesus came, uh, Jerusalem, Israel was under the control of Greece, and what ended up happening in the second century BC, there was a group of very spiritual people very concerned about how worldly Judaism had become. They were called the Hasidim. The Hasidim, they were, they were devout and they were courageous and they were spiritual and what they did, they helped throw off the governance of Greece. It was an amazing thing. That's why the Jews celebrate Hanukkah. They remember the time when with the Maccabees and the Hasidim, they threw off the Greek Empire. Um, the, the Essenes then, 
the Hasidim ended up splitting into two different groups. There were the Pharisees. And with the Pharisees, they felt that, well, you know what, the temple in Jerusalem is not everything it should be, but you really don't, in fact, you really don't have to do the temple stuff to be devout. You can practice Judaism around your home, in your house. And so the Pharisees said, stick it around in Jerusalem, just practice these things in your home. And they were then very popular. The Essenes were a little bit different. They said, you know what, stick a fork in it, Jerusalem it is, is just too corrupt. So what they did, they felt that you need to move away. And they moved out into the desert, and they formed a community, Qumran. Qumran, were, they were devout hyper-spiritual. In fact, if you've ever heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls, where they found all these pots with these carefully recorded parts of the Bible, that was the Essenes that did that. They were, they were very devout. Um, the confusing part, again, why do we need to know all this? The confusing thing was this. Here's what the Essenes practiced. They practiced baptism. They celebrated a meal that was very close to communion, seemed very close. They held all their possessions in common. When you joined in with this group, you would put all your stuff in a place, and then after a year or two, if you continued to be part of this community, they would take your goods and they would be used communally. Um, Another thing was they devoted their time to Bible study, and again, they were responsible for the Dead Sea Scrolls. Does that sound like something? Holding all things in common, communion, Bible study, baptism. It seemed really like Christianity. And that was part of the deal. So when these individuals would come, they'd say, oh, we practice that, we practice that, we practice that, we practice that. The only problem, from another perspective, they didn't, they weren't really much like the Christian church. You say, why? They didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah. That's a big difference, isn't it? You know, you can practice baptism and communion and Bible study and not believe that Jesus is the Messiah. That's a pretty big thing, isn't it? What ended up happening, that once you got underneath the surface of this, you could waltz in and say, hey, this is the same thing, but then as it goes on, you end up seeing more and more differences. Has that ever happened to any of you? You join a group or a cult or a group or something, not join, maybe under, come under the influence of, and, and okay. <laughs> and then, the more you hang around, the more you, you know, I told you about uh, talking to this young woman when I was in college, and we've seen some things, and then the more I talked with her, the more things started to go crazy. You know, so we believe in basically the same things, except that only 144,000 are going to heaven, and okay, I'm not sure how you came up with that. And you know, the, the more it went on, the more these kind of little things ended up falling off the table. You wonder, what the heck is this about? Uh, that was what it was like in, um, with the uh, Essenes that came into the church in Corinth. Um, one thing they believed, 
they refrained from marital intercourse and sensual pleasures. And what they did, they said, we're going to hold the line on that stuff. And because we do, you know what's going to happen? Because we say no to those things, no, we can get married, but we still don't believe in intercourse. We don't believe in any, any, any of that kind of messing around stuff. We're going to hasten the Messiah. We're going to get him to come sooner because we're going to be the Green Berets. We're going to be the special forces. We're going to be the ones who really take God seriously. Those were the individuals that were coming into the church. And Paul sees their, their teachings. In fact, the issue is Paul is not really concerned about celibacy. That's not his real issue. Paul's concerned they don't lapse into ancient Judaism. You say, well, why? Um, I think when Paul looked in his rearview mirror, again, I'm not sure if, you, if you've ever had any things in your past that you really wish you hadn't done and how those things stay with you, you think about them. Imagine what it would have been like as Paul stands as an apostle of the church, and he thinks in his background about the time he stood there and they stoned Stephen to death and they threw their clothes at his, their cloaks at his feet because he was the presiding official and he, he thought about that, thought about all the people he put in prison, all the people he tortured because he was doing exactly what the Old Testament asked and told him to do. He was squishing the church because he was living out a very, very full, unbridled devotion. That's why Paul was scared spitless of people falling back into an unbridled Old Testament devotion that failed to bring Jesus Christ into it. In fact, as we'll say, this was his greatest fear. And it's why he feared this thing. Because celibacy would just be the beginning of it. And then there'd be more and more and more and more. And Paul was, Paul was concerned about it. This is why he's, I think this is really why Paul's an apostle to the Gentiles. He was pulled so far back into Judaism. He was, he was devout. He was flawless. And it, so when he left it, it was like an arrow leaving a quiver, leaving a bow. And that's why he would be the one to go to Gentile churches. And he would say, don't you dare get circumcised, we said in Galatia. Again, if you were... Some of the officials in Jerusalem, I don't think they do that hard a line because Jewish Christians, I think there was some waffle room. But what Paul understood is that if you were a Gentile and you signed off to these things, you would get pulled in more and more and more. And he didn't, he didn't, he knew it was dangerous. That's what he says in verse 2. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does, likewise. The husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. So it 
Don't deprive, do not deprive one another, except by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come back together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Uh, Paul had room for celibacy, but not for the reasons that the Essene-laced teaching espoused. If the celibacy is chosen for the wrong reasons by those with the wrong capabilities, the results can be disastrous. Disastrous. And I'll just cite one evidence. I grew up in Massachusetts at Blessed Sacrament Church. And if you were listening to the news, it's, it was quite a while ago, about uh, maybe 10 or 15 years ago, my mother um, sent me an article out of the Boston Globe that day about a priest who had been found guilty of over 100 counts of pedophilia. It was Father Gagan, the priest that I served as an altar boy under, Blessed Sacrament Church. That's where his career, that's where he started, and he had a target of the kind of individuals that he would seduce and move towards. And one of the things was, I think, that he wouldn't choose um, individuals who had tough fathers. My dad's a tough guy. <laughs> so, so that might be the reason why he didn't go near me. And I was, I was in the car with him on several occasions. And I, I, he was somebody that I admired. I, didn't, I had no idea what was going on. No, some friends. At any rate, what has, what has occurred, this is an individual who had real issues and practiced celibacy. And if you've seen the movies, that, that was just uncovered this huge, what do you call it? It's an amazing legacy of sexual indiscretions that existed because celibacy was enforced. Am I saying pretty should be something? No, I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is that that, that kind of stand can be dangerous because of what it fosters under the surface. That's what I'm saying. Um, fact is, hyper-spirituality can often lead, paradoxically, to a backlash of unrighteousness. Really holding, again, so I'm, saying, I'm not saying make bad choices sexually. What I'm saying, when Paul's concerned about hyper-spirituality, not just setting the bar here, but at a place the Bible doesn't even set it, uh, that can have backlashes. Here's what one writer said. Old taboos put the wild animals of lust and hatred into cages. There they remain, alive and dangerous, a constant threat to their captor. Uh, Paul says that because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Seems to say, wait, wait, wait a minute, the only reason why you should get married is so you can have sex. You know, but that's, again, we have to remember, why is he saying what he's saying? And the issue here, he's not writing a theology of marriage or sexuality. Some Corinthians are thinking that by abstaining from worldly pleasures, they'll bring the Messiah closer. They will rise to new spiritual heights. What's happening? They're crossing over into Judaism. And that is something that Paul understands is dangerous and that he's going to oppose. A couple of things are interesting. 
the early church, they said that um, sexual relations really should only exist for the purpose of procreation as something to be enjoyed. It, they kind of held the line on that. Josephus was a Pharisee. He said the law recognizes no sexual connections except the natural union of man and wife, and that only for the procreation of children. And what Paul says here is that, no, no, the husband and the wife, you come together, and it's not just about procreation. Paul disagrees that it's good for the couple to wean themselves from a sexual relationship. He believes that sexual relations within the marriage are justifiable. And not just for having kids. And again, you say, well, that's, why are we even talking about this? Early on, all this stuff was taught. Second, third, fourth century, it was all these kind of rules and, and things that end up invading the church. Um, another thing that's significant that you might not see is how non-chauvinistic Paul is in his response. It's really pretty striking. Um, the question is framed from a male point of view, right? It's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. I mean, that's, it was a guy that put this forward. It's a very male-oriented question. You know, let's not talk about the woman. You know, this is subservient. But let's talk about the guy. You know, it's really good for a guy. And, and what's interesting, Paul addresses not just the husband, but the wife. He says... Husbands, you know, and wives, you and he treats them both directly and evenly. That's at the time from his background. That's a significant thing. It's contrary to the usual pattern. I've heard this verse when it says, um, "You are not your own." I've heard this used. I've not heard it used, but heard of it being used as a unilateral demand, one to another. You don't own your body, I do. So I am demanding that you give me what I want. Some reference this verse in order to say so. You cannot use this verse for that reason. It's not given for that reason. That's not its proper application. In fact, in the, in the context, it's a basis upon which to have bilateral discussion and dialogue. That's what he talks about, except by mutual agreement. He says, talk about this. It's not something to be levied by one person upon another. And this occurs, and it's, it's not why this verse says what it says. It's used for that reason, but when it's used for that reason, it's plucked out of context and used in an inappropriate way. As a club, if you have been hit with that at some point, that's not what this is about, and it's not what God intended. And I feel bad that it happened. I don't like it. I don't like it. When somebody takes a text, wrenches it out of context in order to subjugate and harm, I don't like that. It's not the purpose. It's not what Paul's thinking. And he would be remiss and is remiss to learn that it's been used in an inappropriate way. Um, Paul argues for a short-lived hiatus and he gives a warning about Satan. Uh, the sexual drive is powerful. Satan is a powerful adversary. 
Paul writes, abstinence may not bring them closer to God, but may make an individual more vulnerable to Satan. What does he mean by that? What does Satan do? You think of it. Again, he's... Um, Satan seems to exist for the purpose of testing the fidelity of faith, the commitment of faith. And what the name Satan literally means is to accuse. The name devil means to divide. Again, to devil something or someone is to throw something in the middle. If I was to throw a glass of water in between, you throw it, and then Taylor, you'd go this way, Randy, you'd go that way. That means I would devil you. That's what I throw something to divide. That's what to Satan and to devil means. It means to accuse, to throw accusations in order to divide. That's what he does. So how does immorality enter the picture? Again, remember, Satan's ultimate objective is accusation and division to move people so that they feel they are far from God. If you base your righteousness on sexual control, if you base your righteousness on sexual control, the more controlled I am sexually, the more spiritual I am. If that's your stance, you're damned if you do and damned if you don't. If you are able to honor your things, you're going to feel separate from all those other people who don't hold up to the standard you hold up to. That's called judgment. It's called judgment. If you don't stand up, hold up to the standards, what's going to happen? You feel like, so either way you get whipped. Hypocrisy and judgment are cancerous spiritually. Cancerous. And they flow from accusation. They flow from judgment. I'm going to say this twice today. I'm going to say it now, and I'm going to say it at the end. We've talked about it before. Some of you have made bad sexual choices. Choices that you wish you hadn't made. You're saying, what do I do now? I mean, Mike, I got an abortion. I don't want to get married, and I... I wouldn't do it, did it? What should I do? You should remember where we're at now relative to how God deals with him. Here's what's going to happen. We're going to walk up to one of two tables, and we're going to take the juice, and we're going to take the bread. And the reason why we do that is to celebrate the inauguration of a new covenant in which God says, I am helios to your unrighteousnesses, and I will remember your sin no more. Here's the question. And here's no, that's the question. Here's what he wants you to believe. I don't know what choices you've made. But what he's saying under the new covenant is, I am still in you, and I'm still with you, and good's still ahead of you, guaranteed. And as we'll say, I'm going to say it at the end too, it might be time you started to believe it. might be time you started to, again, you know what I mean. Some people make some choices and they think that God couldn't forgive that. We've talked about this before. It's like standing there in front of Jesus and saying, nice try, Jesus. 
You know, it might cover that, but it doesn't cover what I've done. That doesn't make much sense, does it? And from one perspective, it's arrogant. Nobody tells you because there's a new covenant. Well, I've been, we've been talking about it. I'm still in you. I'm still with you. Good's still ahead of you. Guaranteed. I'm going to say it at the end, too. And you say, Mike, why should I believe that? Because as you start to believe that, no joke. No joke. As Mark talked about last week, it's not a sexual problem. It's really a sexual solution. You know what the problem is? Tension. Tension. And sex is the means whereby the tension is eradicated. Um, I was speaking at a retreat once. Again, this might be a little bit, I wonder if I should go in this direction. Let me see. I'm going to. Holy smokes. I was, I was doing this retreat for college kids. Maybe I'll turn around and say this. <laughs> no, no, okay. I was doing this retreat for college kids, and um, they came to a place where they said, oh, by the way, Mike, we're going to divide them up, and you're going to talk to the guys and give them the sex talk, and then we're going to divide the girls, and somebody else is going to give them the sex talk. So we did that, and so I talked to these guys. So <laughs> it was interesting. Um, I, I, I thought I'd just wade into it. We're going to talk about masturbation. That's what I said to him. I'm, I told you, that's the part that... So you know what I've said? That that's really a solution, not a problem. That which, we, that which increases the tension is not necessarily connected to that which we use to release it. So it's not really, as Mark talked about, a sexual problem, but as a sexual solution. What is the problem? Tension. Do you know what tension comes from in anxiety? They say fear is the natural response to a perceived threat. You know what anxiety is? The natural response to facing it alone. Do you know what God wants you to know? He is with you. And he's in you. And good's ahead of you. Guaranteed. You know why he wants you to make room for that? Because as you do so, even when you face scary things, you will not face it alone. You know what's going to happen with that? Your tension is going to dissipate slowly. What did I say? It's going to dissipate quickly, tomorrow. Slowly. But, and you'll find over time that some of the addictive things you use to try to alleviate the tension, you don't have to use anymore. Why? Because your tension is not as high. Why? Because you're starting to believe he's still in me and he's still with me. And good's still ahead of me, guaranteed. When I talk about this, I'm not talking about justifying your choices. You know what confession means? To say the same thing as. And so we're going to talk about this again at the end of the, the message. I don't want to leave it in the beginning. Um, at any rate, um, 
He ends up going on, Paul says, now as a concession, not as a command, I say this, I wish that all were as, as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say, that it is good for them to remain signal as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. fact is, Paul considers remaining single, and he says it. He was single. He sees it as the better course for unmarried Christian. He, in his opinion, it allows for unhindered devotion to the Lord, and it's the better option for those who have the gift to live it out. And you know what he calls celibacy and singleness at some points? Not just a missed opportunity. It's not a lack what he describes it as, in some cases, as a gift. It's a gift that he believes he had. And he believes that some individuals at that time had. And if you're single and you're wondering, did I miss the boat? It might be a gift given to you. And the fact that it's a gift has some implications. If it's a gift then it's not just about personal preference or missed opportunity. It could be you were called to the state that you exist in. That's what Paul indicates. At some point, it's a gift. And if it's a gift, it's to be understood not as something that just benefits you. You're saying, I don't like it. But the deal with a gift is it doesn't benefit you. It benefits others. Again, we've talked about fruit. A tree does not eat its own fruit, doesn't it? Fruit exists for something else. Gifts aren't given so that the one who has the gift can enjoy it. It's given so that the body of Christ can enjoy it. And so Paul believed he had the gift of celibacy and singleness because it allowed him a more unhindered way of serving Christ. It benefited other people. And that's the way he describes the giftedness. Um, if an unmarried Christian feels the need to be sexual active, Paul says he should, mather, he should marry rather than simmer in a stew of unfulfilled desire or take pleasure with illicit loves. Many in the ancient world did not think that passion was a mean to marry. It was just a, was just a reason to have sex. And they said, you don't, have, you don't have to be married to have sex. Paul would disagree. He would disagree. He says sex belongs within a committed marital relationship. Again, some of you have, do, make choices. What should you do if you're on the far side of this line? I like what Mark talked about last week. It says, admit the standard and that you, we fall short. You've made decisions, but all of what Jesus indicated, that it's not just about what you do, it's what you think. So he said, I've never committed adultery. You ever lusted? Jesus said it's the same thing. You say, I would never hurt anybody. Have you gotten angry at anybody? Jesus equated that with murder. You say, why are you doing all this? Because let's acknowledge the standard. Just acknowledge it. And acknowledge that we've fallen short. And acknowledge, you remember the four things? Because of the new covenant, you acknowledge the standard, you acknowledge you've fallen short. So what that means is, you know what, God, I did fall short. I did do this. I did do that. But thank you that you're still in me. You're still with me. Good's still ahead of me. 
Guarantee. Is that excusing it? No, that's the new covenant. That's what it teaches. That's what we're supposed to believe. Believe it. Believe it. I'm not angry. It's just important. It's what he says. Believe what he says. Paul goes on. To the unmarried, I give this charge. I, not the Lord, the wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. Um, Paul turns to the issue of divorce. Um, Intermarriage introduced a new wrinkle When Jesus talked about divorce, he was talking about a Jewish man, Jewish woman, same beliefs. What happens, though? If you're with somebody and you become a Christian, and now the person who you live with doesn't share your beliefs anymore. And so Paul deals with that. Many Corinthian Christians were converted from the worship of idols. And I think what they were saying is that uh, does being married to a pagan defile me in some way as a Christian. I mean, I not only that maybe I, but I should divorce. The Bible does indicate, and here's what it says in Ezra. They come to a place where some of the Jews say, we're broken faith with our God and have married foreign women from the peoples of And even now there is hope for Israel in spite of this. And what they ended up doing is, and the Bible sanctioned it, is if you marry a pagan woman, divorce her. Get rid of her. And you know what Paul says as he updates this? Um, No. If the person that you live with is willing to live with you, don't divorce them. Religious incompatibility at this time. And again, do you understand what was happening at this time? They felt that he says no. If they're willing to stay, you stay. If they're not willing, let them go. He, um, he says that the unbelieving spouse might be sanctified. What does that mean? You know, it, it really seems to indicate, and it's an interesting thing, um, that the spouse being within the context of the relationship has a positive spiritual impact on that individual and even says, makes him whole. I don't know exactly what it means, but I think it's, it's based on a couple of things. Um, what it says is that um, the idea maybe hinges on two becoming one flesh, God's blessing of marriage. Maybe that's, I think that might be what he's thinking. And I'm not sure about all the implications, but what Paul says, stay because you'll have a positive spiritual benefit to become one flesh. It's interesting. Um, He sums up by talking about um, saying, neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Um, What Paul has done in this passage, as we think about closing now, we're going to move on to communion. Communion. 
he talks about obeying the commandments of God but disregarding circumcision. Um, he says circumcision doesn't mean anything, but if you look at the commands of God, um, one of the commandments in the Old Covenant is that you need to be circumcised. So what Paul is doing here, he's distinguishing between what the commandments of God are now under the New Covenant and what the commands of God were. At one point, the commands of God were circumcision, were these different things. And Paul differentiates what they were from what they are. And now he says that circumcision is not something, not naturally, that's mandated biblically. Um, Paul's removing circumcision from the commands of God. Um, we usually fall into the trap of making sexual control the litmus test for spirituality. The more sexually chaste the more spiritual. Is sexual behavior relevant to this discussion? Yeah, it's relevant. Is it, is it the basis upon which acceptance is given? No. If you believe and continue to believe in the new covenant, will it affect your sexual choices? Yes, it will. It will. And you know what you'll find? You'll find that it's doing so, but you're not fighting it. Will it take time? Yes, it will. Listen to me. Listen to me. I'm going to tell you one more time, and you might think of it as you go up to the table. We make choices. And what ends up happening, we feel distanced from him. That is not God that is making you feel the distance. That comes from the other direction. You know what you do in that direction? You know what you do with that? You confess. Say what God says about the thing that you did. Say what he says. What did he say? Whether you're online or you did this, you did that, you do this, you do that. What I'm asking you to do, when you do it, and you say, I did it again. I want, you to, I want you to say what God says about it. Number one, you admit it. That was wrong. That crossed a line. I did this thing. and But don't, don't stop there. Because God says more about that behavior than it was wrong. What he says is, you remember the four things now, don't you? I'm still in you. I'm still with you. Good's still ahead of you, guaranteed. I'm, I'm encouraging you to do that. Right on the far side, and you say, well, what if I keep on doing it? Keep doing it and keep believing it, because you know what's going to happen? At some point, it's going to begin to register. You keep staying with it. And as it be continues to register, you're going to find, and it's going to surprise you, it's going to start to change your heart. But you've got to grab it. Don't be cavalier about it. This is not a nice thing to do. It's necessary. This is not playing around. 
Grab it. You're still in me. You're still with me. Good's still ahead of me. Guaranteed. You do it again. You're still in me. You're still with me. Good's still ahead of me. Guaranteed. Make room for it. And it will change the way you think and act. We're going to experience communion. You know what I want you to do? I want you to think about what this table represents. It represents the new covenant in the blood. We One way to define the new covenant is those four statements. I want you to think about those statements as you go up there. And we have a tendency to leave bad choices behind when we go up to the table, leave them under our chair. I want you to pick your baggage up and take it with you to the table. Don't go with a, the kind of person that you wished you were. He died for you as you are. Believe it. Take your baggage with you. The stuff that you wish you hadn't done. Bring it to the table. That's why the table exists. I want you to think of, you're still in me, you're still with me, good's still ahead of me, guaranteed, because you died on the cross for me and inaugurated a new covenant. We're going to have music and, and do that and think about those and then we'll sing a final song. Father, thank you for the way you've demonstrated your love towards us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Thanks for that. In Jesus' name, amen.